years than I knew the ministry. When I started, I was 23, and because I was young and nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> and then as time went on, I just got in the habit. And I've always gotten along well with kids. And I'll never forget one Sunday in Athens, Georgia, not too long ago, when the entire youth group sort of, I should have known something was up. They all were sitting about right here. And just as I got ready to start my sermon, they all reached and pulled up their pants. <laughs> Turns out I do that every time. Just <laughs> <laughs> now is what I remember. That's the point of all that. Now we're ready when he tucks up his pants. Pray with me a minute, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my rock and my redeemer. Amen. When I was uh, about 12 years old, about this time of year, our little mountain church in Surrey County, North Carolina, was having its annual revival. Now, they always brought in a traveling evangelist, and we had services every night of the week, and we'd have uh, a visiting choir from another church, maybe. You know, that's a good way to pump up the attendance. Youth choir and children's choirs and youth choirs were great. Grandma and granddaddy and all them had to come. My mother would have them sing and maybe a gospel quartet or a trio. And then after the preliminaries, as my daddy called them, the evangelist preached the night's installment of Jesus is coming soon and you better get ready. <laughs> the sermons in my memory were all about the second coming, and the rapture, and the tribulation, and the final judgment, and the lake of fire. I remember one evangelist had this canvas that he rolled out across the entire front of the church where he had charted it all out, <laughs> with very vividly painted Grandma Moses type pictures. It, it was quite fascinating. It was also, to a 12-year-old boy, very, very real and very, very frightening. One morning during the fall revival when I was about 12, I woke up to a completely empty house. I shared a bedroom with two brothers. It was 6 a.m. and they were not in the room. I went over and flipped the light switch, nothing. I said, hmm, oh, burned out. I stumbled downstairs and I was a little surprised at not hearing breakfast cooking noises coming from the kitchen. No other light switches would turn on. No TV would turn on. The radio wouldn't turn on. Mama and Daddy weren't there. But my sisters weren't there. Although I was barefoot and wearing nothing but the t-shirt and shorts I slept in, I ran out of the house into that 30 degree temperature and started looking around. Even the dog was missing. Suddenly, my well-trained fundamentalist mind kicked in. Oh, my Lord, the rapture has come, and I have been left behind. I fell on my knees there in the backyard. I can still feel that kind of icy, dewy grass on my knees. And I started praying fervently and inarticulately, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Please, 
Dude, slide. Raised my head from my prayers and I saw the tractor coming over the hill from up behind the house. I was pulling a trailer full of cured tobacco with my family on the trailer holding the tobacco on and our dog Rover running around yipping at the trailer. <sighs> Jesus had not come back. I had not been left behind. Well, I had been left behind, but not by Jesus. <laughs> Brief explanation, this was the time of year when we prepared the tobacco for market. It was stored in the pack house on top of the hill, and once a week, load up a load to bring down to the house and put it in the cellar where mom and daddy worked on it while the rest of us were at school. So we had to get up before school and go help them with that. It was usually all hands on deck, but... The night before, I'd had the sniffles, and Mama had taken mercy on me and decided to leave me in bed. And as often happened in rural electrification, the power had gone out for a couple hours. There was no rapture, just a series of random and, for me, unfortunate events. But obviously, I'm still scarred by that morning. <laughs> Whenever I read a text like today's gospel lesson, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquake and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. I shudder as I remember that cold morning in the backyard, both from the cold and my residual fear. Now, the gospel story we read starts off innocently enough. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. He's got a large crowd with him, admirers, and, and maybe near the merely curious. And just like most of us would, we walked into a great cathedral. Somebody said, wow, this is beautiful. Look at all these stones. Isn't this great? <coughs> Underneath it was, isn't this great evidence that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, is the great God? I'm, but I'm sure everyone was a bit surprised when Jesus went dark quickly. He started talking about natural disasters and political intrigue and international violence as signs of the end of time. Probably not a few started thinking, Jesus, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. was not preaching gloom and doom in some great future cataclysmic event. Jesus was preaching about real life in the real world for those people at that time. Jesus was not predicting some far off day of ultimate battle. He was talking about their life and what was going to happen soon to them. Talking about their life that very day as they stood in that very temple surrounded by streets full of Roman soldiers. You have to remember, Israel was an occupied country. It was ruled over by a distant and cruel Roman emperor. And things were mounting. It was inevitable that bad things were going to eventually happen to God. And it was building, and it was going to happen very soon. 
And it did. This Gospel of Luke was probably written down around 90 AD. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The nation of Israel was scattered. That's when the diaspora happened. They, Jesus knew, and the people reading this knew it had already happened. When they read it, they understood. What, what does it mean that God has allowed Israel to be destroyed and the temple destroyed? They were staring in the face of a great cataclysm and they did not know what to do. And moments like that, our questions boil down to just two. Where is God in the midst of our trouble? And what are we to do? Jesus answers the first question, where is God? With the promise that God is where God always has been and always will be. God is in the midst of our life and our trouble with us. You read carefully through that, he says, don't worry about what to say, God will be there. Don't be terrified, God will be there. These things will happen, but God will be there. In answer to the second question, what are we to do? Jesus says that the faithful life is about trusting God and then doing daily that which God places directly in front of us to do. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. Verse 14. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you your words and the wisdom. Verse 18. But be assured, not a hair of your head will perish. And verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Just like the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, worrying about the destruction by the Romans, we have plenty of things to worry about, don't we? ridiculous mess in Washington, the ongoing and seemingly endless wars in the Middle East, global warming, another school shooting, healthcare debates, and, and, and. I started, if I started a list, it would carry, carry over several pages of the things that can keep me awake at night. And one of the real problems we have is that all these things that worry and frighten us seem so large and global and intractable and unmanageable while we feel so very small and limited and ultimately powerless to do anything about anything. That we may begin to feel as though nothing we do matters and then we become tempted to throw our hands up in despair bury our heads in the sand and hope against hope that it all just turns out all right. About 20 years ago, I was living in, in Nashville, Tennessee, at a church there, and there was a bumper sticker that was popular in town, and, and uh, you saw it almost everywhere. It was kind of a spiritualized kind of thing. It said, visualize world peace kind of ubiquitous. Visualize world peace. One morning, I was driving my son across town to school. 
we were bogged down in the usual 7.15 a.m. commuter mess on I-440 when I saw a different bumper sticker that expressed my frustration perfectly. Forget world peace. Visualize using your turn signal. <laughs> be entirely honest, there was an expletive in there that I deleted. <laughs> Visualize using your turn signal. I thought to myself, that's right, visualizing world peace is too hard, it's too unlikely, it's too, too amorphous to spend a lot of energy on, but I can remember to use my turn signal. Who knows, I thought to myself, maybe if everybody in Nashville and Tennessee and the South and the United States and the world would use their turn signals correctly, it might be a real start toward world peace. <laughs> I know it would reduce my animosity toward my anonymous driving neighbors. Jesus' words in our gospel lesson call us to a life of endurance, of patience, and faith in the midst of a world that is often very, very difficult, very, very confusing, and very, very frightening. A world that makes us kind of ultimately treat. Jesus' words invite us to a faith that looks above and beyond our current and temporary circumstances to the promise of God to hold us and keep us forever. And God, Jesus' words remind us to do each day the little things, like using your turn signal, the seemingly unimportant things that may mean nothing in the moment, but turn out to mean everything for eternity. Unitarian minister Robert Fulton published a book some years ago called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. He tells the story there of a medieval stone cutter who was working on a cathedral. An interested bystander saw the man working every day, carefully cutting and shaping and polishing one relatively small piece of stone. Every day when the man came by, the woodcutter was working on the same piece of stone. This went on for a couple of weeks. Finally, the watcher stopped and said, look, this stone must be very important for you to spend so much time and energy on it. Is it going to be a part of the baptismal font? Is it going to be the base of the pulpit? Is it going to be the cornerstone of, of the altar? The stone cutter got up from his knees and wiped his apron and come with me and they walked the whole length of the cathedral around to the back, around the apse, and he pointed up above a window in a corner in a very obscure place and he said, it goes right there. You're working so hard on something nobody will see? 
Stone Cutter smiled, and as he walked away, he said over his shoulder, We're not building this cathedral for nobody. We're building it for God. And every stone is a truth as a As we face a world that feels, feels dangerous and intractable and unhealable, we are each called. Thank you.